Facing temptation, remember God's justice and His faithfulness. Dear Church, it's with great privilege and pleasure and a, a bit of sadness that I stand up here today to preach to you uh, one last time for now. Uh, my name is Peter and my wife and I are members here at WSBC at this church. As some of you may already know, uh, our family's adventure, our journey here in Shanghai and in China will soon draw to a close in a few weeks, and we're preparing to go back to the U.S. So as we're clearing out old things in our home, we're packing up sentimental items, we inevitably find ourselves in a flood of memories from the last 16 years for me here, the last 18 years for my wife here. And so much has changed as we look back and we reflect and remember the difficulties and the challenges. We reminisce about good times and just the many friends that have passed through the city and they relocated to other countries. And we remember seasons of loss when we grieved, but we're always reminded of the Lord's faithfulness. Being here for 16 years, I've met many people and I've also had to say goodbye to many. And in these goodbyes, there's been some of them that we've been able to meet again, only it was in a different context because we were outside of the, of the Shanghai context. But for most of my friends that I've left, they're now only digital friends. Friends that I'll chat with on Facebook or on Instagram, I'll see pictures of their children growing, I'll message or comment uh, on each other's posts. And soon these short messages wane over time as well, and so they may decrease to just the trivial exchange of, of a few hearts to each other or a few thumbs up and likes on each other's posts. And this change makes me think of the, the Pixar movie, Coco. It's a movie that's centered around the Mexican holiday, the Day of the Dead. And so I'm always a sucker for these movies. Anytime there's a relationship between a dad and a daughter, it always gets to me. But in this film, the fictional setting of the afterlife there hinges on an important fact that as long as there's a person here in this living world that remembers you, then you won't disappear from the afterlife and you won't enter into the final death. And so it's interesting because today as we look at our scripture from 1 Corinthians 10, the first half, it's also a passage of remembering. Today's section is part of a larger portion of Paul's letter starting back in chapter 8 and closing right in chapter 11. And on the surface, it seems just to focus on the question about eating meat that was designated as sacrifice to the idols. This was a question that the Corinthian church had written and posed to Paul about earlier in chapter 8. Paul begins addressing this main question about this food that's offered to idols. He continues this in his letter to urge them to really examine their own hearts when they approach this, and then he also goes on to how they should view him as their spiritual leader. And in today's scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 3, Paul reminds the church of the past, even using some negative examples and negative memories of their people's disobedience. But ultimately, he writes to them to remember and recall the Lord's faithfulness despite our rebellion. In the upcoming weeks of this summer, we'll continue to go through chapter 10 and we'll continue to see Paul directly addressing 
the idol feasts. And summarizing this uh, section later on in Corinthians by restating his quote from earlier in chapter 6 when he wrote, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Or reminding the church about the Lord's faithfulness, he directly addresses two major issues in today's passage, temptation and idolatry. Listen along and follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read today's scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with both of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The word of the Lord. Looking at today's scripture, I think to summarize this, or, or just the main challenge that is posed here is, when facing temptation, remember God's justice and faithfulness. So the main point, the summary of today, when facing temptation, remember God's justice and faithfulness. And in breaking up our text today, we'll be remembering these in three specific areas as spelled out by Paul. First, remember who we are. The second, remember who we were. And the third is remember who he is. Remember who we are, remember who we were, and remember who he is. If you know me, you know I like alliteration, so I couldn't go by today without having one more alliteration for us. So if you want, point one, you can write down presumption, to presume. Point two can be written as punishment. And point three can be promise. So we're remembering these things, but then there's a little theme of each of these points that Paul lays out for us. It's my prayer today that as we look at this passage of Scripture, we remember, we remember how the Lord has called and blessed His people we remember his justice of when we sin against him. And most of all, we remember his faithfulness when we struggle. Let's look at our first point. Remember who we are. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Paul uses this first part of the passage to remind the church again of the advantages of the blessings that God has shown to his people of who they are in Christ. So when we ask this first question, when we think of remembering who we are, it's answered by Paul here as he brings the church, as he points us back to God's covenant and his provision for his people. Specifically, Paul here is recollecting the journey in Exodus when God led his people out of Egypt. 
So remember, Corinth has a very diverse population. And so the makeup of this church is Corinth is similar to here where it's predominantly Gentile. So like us, they may not necessarily have this same background, the same culture, the same historical context of, of the Israelites' journey. Even if that's true, even that's the case, Paul's language here is still very inclusive of the Gentile church. He addresses them all as brothers, and he includes them in this Jewish and Israelite ancestry when he writes, Our Fathers, showing to the church the unifying power of the blood of Christ. The chosen people that Yahweh covenanted with has been extended out beyond just the Israelites, but to the members of the church. The gospel is for everyone, no matter the culture. And so Paul reminds the church of who we are here as children of God, and he uses this inclusive language to help refresh the entire church on four of the blessings that he lists out, or four of the provisions that he lists out from the Lord. The first provision that he lists here is just the leading and the protection of the Lord. Verse 1 says, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is referring to the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites on their journey through the wilderness that shielded them from the brutal desert sun. The cloud represents the Lord's protection, his leading, his provision for his people. And the sea, of course, is a reference to the Red Sea in Exodus 14 when the Lord held up the walls with his power of the Red Sea so that his people could walk safely through and escape. A true miracle that every Jewish child will definitely hear and know, but it's a remarkable enough miracle that even some Gentile Christians would have probably heard and been familiar with those stories as well. And so after God's people safely crossed, the Lord allows the waves again to crash down on Pharaoh, on his army, as the Lord protects his people and he leads them to safety. The Lord provides for us, he provides for the church in the same way that he provided for his people and led them out of Egypt. We often see the Lord at work and we often want to ask questions of, of why did this happen? Why are you allowing friends to be stuck out of China? Why are buildings and shall choose being locked down? Why do we face persecution as a church? And so from this account, we can see that the Israelites faced these difficulties. They faced persecution from the Egyptians. They faced pressure, but that the Lord provides for his people so that his name would be glorified. The second provision here is baptism. In verse 2, Paul writes that the Israelites were baptized into Moses, which is kind of a strange way to put it because Christian baptism you associate with being baptized into Jesus. Moses, in many ways, for the Israelites, for God's people, is a type of Jesus. That means he points us and reminds us of Jesus. And he directs the Israelites here, Paul directs the Israelites to think about who Jesus is, passing from Moses to think about who Jesus is. Passing through the water, through the Red Sea, the Israelites identify with Moses as a foreshadow for future believers, for future church members, passing through the water of baptism so that we're identified with Jesus. And so the reason that Paul is noting this baptism here, especially, is that despite this symbolic baptism, the Israelites still had a tendency for idolatry, and they still turned their backs to God, and so therefore they suffered in the wilderness. Their baptism didn't keep them from God's judgment because they still kept sin and idolatry in their hearts. And this is a warning for the Corinthian church, as well as for us, that the act of baptism alone isn't what is going to save us. 1 Peter 3, 
Verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter writes here that just being dunked in the water, but not having that heart of repentance, will be the same as just taking a shower and removing the, excel, uh, the excess dirt. The inner heart, the Spirit's work in our conscience, those are what are examined by God. The third blessing that Paul lists here is communion for the church and for his people. Verse 3 and 4 states, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. So here Paul is historically referring to another miracle during the Exodus and the provision of manna that the Lord provided to feed Israel during the journey and the miracle of water coming from the rock. Again, another miracle and another remarkable display of God's provision and his love and his mercy for his people to provide for their physical needs. For the Corinthian church, Paul's recalling this to them of this great provision of spiritual food and drink, again, as a, a typological reminder for them on the act of communion in the church, to remind them of communion, the taking of the food and drink at the Lord's Supper. And so if you've been attending here, you're a member here, you know that we as a church do this when we're gathered together. We'll do this today to conclude our service. It's not something to take lightly. It's not something just to do the motions of and say, okay, well, here's a piece of bread and here's a small cup of wine or grape juice. It's something that we, can, we cannot do without the church. It's why we haven't taken communion during the lockdown the last few months when we're alone in our homes. And so each time we do this, we're gathered face to face, we can be reminded for self-examination, as Paul also writes later in Corinthians 11, and so doing so requires us to examine our relationship with each other and with Christ. And so that leads us to the fourth provision or the blessing that we saw Paul refer to in this section, and that's the presence of Christ, the presence of the rock of Christ. The miracle of the water from which the Israelites received uh, is a way, uh, and the way that Paul writes it here in verse 4, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. It makes the connection of the presence of Christ with the Israelites as their source of living water in the wilderness. He reminds them that the Corinthian church has the same foundation of the spiritual rock as, as their Israelite ancestors did. He's reminding them that they have access to this water freely, this living water. But this connection of Christ with the Israelites and that Christ is with the Corinthian church shows that they didn't have any clear advantage over their ancestors because they share these same four provisions, these four blessings as well, but that if they also continue on their divided and their unloving ways, the Corinthian church would also meet the same justice that the Israelites met in the desert, when the Lord punishes Israel for their grumbling and their sin. You see, what the Israelites dealt with, and what the Corinthian church, and what we, WSBC, currently have to be careful of is the presumption of privilege. As Paul reminds them to remember who they are, we're the Lord's children, that he's called us into salvation, that we have baptism, we have communion together, we have Christ and the living waters. He also includes here a warning of the dangers of presumption. The Israelites, when confronted with suffering, with struggles, they had a lack of trust in God. They even questioned his will and his deliverance. 
in Numbers 14 too, they complain, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died in this wilderness? Do we have these kind of complaints in our hearts? Do we grumble with each other? Do we not trust in the Lord's good and sovereign will for our church, for our lives? Paul summarizes these in verse 5 as a warning. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Shows how the Lord had blessed the Israelites, but despite these privileges, these blessings, because of their lack of faith, because of their idolatry, because of their hard hearts, they were punished. And that generation died in the wilderness. In fact, only two men from the adult generation that left Egypt would eventually be permitted even to enter into Canaan, into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Paul reminds the church to remember that who we are as God's people, that those that God has set apart, but that despite all of these benefits, all these blessings that Paul has listed here, we still see the downfall of the Israelites. We still can't experience that downfall as a church. For all their blessings and spiritual experiences, they never entered into what God really had for them. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord, we see the story of Exodus here as a mirror, as a parallel for our own spiritual deliverance from sin. We see how the Lord has called his people out of slavery in Egypt, just like us, how the Lord has called us out of slavery and bondage of sin, how we were stuck in sin, but he has called us out to salvation through Jesus Christ, that we follow him, confess he is Lord, confess our sins and repent, that he is the only way to salvation in heaven. To follow Jesus means to publicly proclaim our desire to follow him through baptism. And to follow Jesus means to love the church, love the body, taking communion together, to be covenant together as members of a church. Verses 5 and 6 serves as a warning for who we are and what we have received from the Lord, but also serves as a transition to our second point, remember who we were. So our second point, remember who we were. In this next section, Paul shows that the past mistakes of, the, of God's people to the church to help remember these sins and then see the Lord's righteous punishment. But he also writes this to serve as a warning for the church not to repeat these same mistakes seen in history. Listen again as I reread verses 6 to 12. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul now brings us back to the current state of things in the Corinthian church. This brief refresher that he had from Exodus was to help him get a reference point to see that the Lord is faithful, that the Lord is faithful to his people, and to remember who they are in the Lord, that his provisions, his blessings, they remain the same even back uh, during the Exodus. But even more so, it serves as a way to also warn them 
of their future if they continue to desire evil in the eyes of the Lord the way that the Israelites, that their ancestors did. Parallel to how he had written four types of spiritual advantages or blessings that were given by God, Paul here now lists four sins and admonishments of the ancient Israelite sins for the Corinthian church to avoid, and he follows the sins with the direct punishment that we see from the Lord. The first sin that Paul lists here is to be idolaters, seen in verse 7. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This line here is a direct reference to Exodus chapter 32, verses 4 to 6, when God's people turned to the golden calf, an idol that they created, they fashioned with their own hands, and they worshipped. Verse 6 in Exodus 32 directly says, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The play is ambiguous here, but it does imply sinful nature of the people as they were doing this false idol worship. And remembering who we were, it's good to take a step back and look again at this section of Corinthians and look at what Paul has already explained previously to the Corinthian church. While the church is asking Paul for a specific question about food, about can we eat this food, Paul dissects this question, he gets to the real issue. The real issue at hand is not just about that food. The food happens just to be the concrete example that's being discussed, but the heart of this discussion is about idolatry, specifically the possibility that the church would go back to their former lifestyle of worshiping idols and move away from Christ. In this response, Paul's addressing two larger issues that plagues the heart of man, temptation and idolatry. Remember back in chapter 8, Paul already stated that it was fine. It's fine for you to eat this food that was already offered up as a sacrifice to idols. Paul wrote in verse 4 of chapter 8 that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So he's already established that idols are really nothing. Well, later on, he says that even though they have this right for them to eat this food, they should still take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak so that it may cause others to stumble in their faith and they would give in to temptation to idolatry. So it's important here, Paul reiterates this because he wants them to know that their knowledge should be surpassed by their love for, that the church has for each other. That their love for each other, their love to not allow each other to stumble should be on a higher regard than just their knowledge of saying, well, I know this idol is not real. In chapter 9, Paul gives an example of how he surrenders his own rights as their spiritual leader, as their teacher, in order to further allow the gospel to be proclaimed. He willingly lays down his own rights. Similarly, the original audience of the letter also needs to consider to give up their rights to eat this meat, sacrifice to idols, to show love towards a weaker brother in the church. So the idolatry here that's talked about isn't the usual worshipped idols that you think about in the pagan temple. It's not these graven images that are in those temples. Rather, the idols that we're talking about here are the ones that are found in the hearts of the church members. Idols that we hold, such as prideful knowledge, that we know that we can handle this, self-sufficiency. Another idol that could be held in the Corinthian church and in our church could be personal comfort in the form of unlovingly claiming our own rights 
to the detriment or to the expense of others. You see, dining at the local pagan temple and eating this food will have two negative effects on the church community. The knowledgeable who think that they can tolerate this, they can withstand this kind of temptation, when they do this, they're only causing others to stumble and be tempted back to the life of idolatry. And the second negative impact is that they themselves are flirting with idolatry of their own personal comforts, of their own personal rights, of their own personal indulgence of this food, of this steak, of this meat. Because even though they know that we're not worshiping this god or goddess of the temple, they're still selfishly placing their own social needs, their own comforts before following the example of Christ. As for us, we need to be reminded that as Christians, we may believe we have freedoms, we may believe we have rights, but that the preaching and the advancement of the gospel, the ministry of the church, these things may mean that we may need to be prepared to willingly give up our own personal rights. The second sin that Paul lists here is indulging in sexual immorality. As it says in verse 8, not to commit sexual immorality as some of them have committed. And so this story is from the reading today from Numbers 25, and it shows how the people engaged in sexual immorality while worshiping idols and false gods. And so the 23,000 that Paul lists here is a rough approximation of that day in reference to the 24 that were destroyed completely um, by the plague in verse 9 of Numbers 25. And so we know in the Corinthian culture, in the Corinthian church, that there is sexual uh, depravity in, that, in the pagan culture there. And so Paul is only, again, reinforcing to the church not to give in to that temptation. We had a sermon a few weeks ago uh, about the second half of 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul writes specifically warning the church to flee from sexual immorality. So I'd encourage you to reread that section in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the second half, as a refresher to look at Paul's writing about avoiding sexual immorality. The culture around us may press in with values. They may press in against our holiness. They may press in against these things, but we need to cling to God. We need to cling to his standard. The third sin that's listed here is putting Christ to the test, found in verse 9. It says, not to test the Lord as some of them tested, there were many instances of this scene throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, of challenging Jesus and his teachings. Paul here is warning them that if they both eat at Jesus' table, take in communion with the church, and at the same time they eat at the idol's table with the same motivation and the same reverence that they have there, then they are putting Christ to the test. And he ends this with a reference back to Numbers 21, verses 5 to 6. It reads, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no bread, there's no water, and our soul loathes this light bread. Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. You see the Lord's punishment for our testing of his will. I do want us to note that even with this grumbling and this open complaining, we still see the Lord's mercy for his people when they confess to him and they repent. And you can see in continuing on in verses 7 to 9, when the people confessed their sin to Moses, he prayed for the people. 
God responded by telling Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. When anyone was bitten by a serpent, he or she had to look only to look at the bronze serpent to be saved. In the Numbers 21 account, that story fits the sense of testing the Lord, of challenging, of testing His will. And so when have we questioned His perfect will for our lives? When have we believed that we know better than God to question His authority in our lives? Do our prayer lives reflect lives that seek to conform to His will, that seek to honor Him, to bring Him glory? Do we pray for His will to be done on earth that is in heaven, as Jesus instructs us to do? Do we pray for requests that ask Him to do our will? Do we think that our will is better than His, that He should fulfill our requests? The Lord's will is greater than our will. The fourth and last sin that's listed here in this section is complaining hearts. It reads in verse 10, not to grumble as some of them also grumbled. A heart of discontent, of grumbling, of complaining, is often seen in this account of Exodus. The Israelites vocalize their complaints uh, against Yahweh. But Paul here writes that these complainers were destroyed by the destroyer. Basically, his warning on the Lord's punishment is that if it happened to Israel, it can happen to you. It can happen to the Corinthian church. Be on guard against the complaining heart. The Corinthian church wrote to Paul about the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols, and they thought of this as a, as a small issue without seeing how that their actions would cause their brother, their fellow believers in church to stumble. Paul answers, he wants them and he wants us to know that it reflects a selfish, a self-focused heart, which is the kind of heart that God destroyed among the Israelites in the wilderness. It may have been a relatively small question, a small symptom, but it represented a greater problem and a more dangerous disease of hardness and selfishness in the heart. Verse 11 serves here as a summary again and a transition after these four examples, similar to how verse 5 did before. Verse 11 reads, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. These examples and historical references that are used by Paul again, to show and remind the Corinthian church to be careful and to remember the past, who their ancestors and even who we were, who they were, so that we would not repeat the same sins of those before us. That these punishments are to serve as examples given by God. God is gracious in allowing us to see and read these examples that they're written down for our instruction. In this verse, Paul also addresses another concern as well. The end of ages have come that until that day comes, that there's still time now to learn from past errors, to come before the Lord, to repent. And now we reach our third and final point of today. Remember who He is from verses 12 to 13. Remember who He is. And remember the word here is promise. Remember His promise. Paul follows all of this above his brief history lesson to the Corinthian church with the word therefore, to link all that was written above with these last two verses to conclude. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul's warning is for anyone who believes that they are able to stay, stand strong on their own, that they're able to resist temptation by themselves. By referring to the historical context of what was seen in the people of Israel, Paul shows that the Israelites presumed that because the Lord was delivering them, leading them by the cloud and sea, saving them, that they had a covenant relationship with Yahweh, that they believed that they had all these advantages and they were standing well in the Lord. However, they had a lack of faith. They had complaining, grumbling hearts. They had unfaithful behavior of worshiping idols, and that led for them to fall to the temptation to be selfish, to be self-focused and idolatrous. And so this resulted in the Lord's punishment. So verse 12 shows the, the arrogance, again, of how the church may have thought that those signs of blessings meant that their salvation didn't require devotion. Here Paul urges a self-watchfulness as well as accountability in the church. That the first step to resist temptation is to recognize that you are vulnerable to temptation. You're susceptible to temptation. That it can affect you. Only with this first admission of need to be vigilant does Paul then move on to verse 13 where he outlines three points of encouragement to the church and three points of, of promise from the Lord. The first encouragement is that these temptations are common to man. They're common to man. These temptations to be unfaithful is seen in all humans in our rebellion against God. There's nothing more damaging to us than the thinking that our sin is very personal, is very unique, that it's a temptation, it's a struggle that only we ourselves are dealing with and not anyone else in the church. So we keep that sin a secret. We think others can't relate to us. The fact is, here Paul is addressing the entire church in his letter, that a church unified, clinging to Christ and loving each other as one body will, be able to, will not be tempted beyond their ability as a body to know that each will experience temptations together and to stand together to encourage each other to remain faithful. So when you face struggles with temptation, are you leaning in on the church or do you isolate yourselves even more and back out and feel that your situation is too unique? Or do you feel that you're too unworthy to turn to the church for help, that you feel like you can't be amongst the other members and brothers and sisters? These temptations are common to man, that all experience this together. And as a church, we can be unified in Christ's blood to support each other. The second encouraging promise here is God is faithful. He's faithful to his people. God is faithful. Paul specifically writes here that we won't be tested beyond our breaking point. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. This promise needs to be understood that the Lord is sovereign and that nothing will occur outside of his will. And we can be encouraged that the chief end of these trials, of these temptations, is for the Lord to be glorified, for his church to be more like him. Jesus is faithful to his bride, to the church. He has paid the price for the church's sin so that we may be redeemed. And the third note here is God will provide. God will provide. He'll provide us with the needed resources to face temptation. 
It's shown here that with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. While it states that the Lord will provide a way of escape, it's very difficult for us to formulate or to say what it's going to look like for different people and with different temptations. And it isn't just a mere relief of giving in to that temptation as well. The word here for escape, uh, ekbasis, is related to how an army that's escaping from a mountain pass, that they're marching down this narrow road to avoid defeat. Interestingly enough, this same word here is also found in Hebrews 13.7, referring to the end of a life well, uh, well spent, exhibited by the Spirit in dying. And so looking at verse 13, we want to dig in and see what exactly it's telling us. You see, the problem is that when we take one piece of Scripture out of context, it's, we try to apply it, but we forget the background of why Paul wrote this exact sentence here in verse 13. Remember earlier in his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul started off by addressing the most crucial point that the church needs to be unified by gospel love. This is a response because of many reports about division that he hears regarding the Corinthian church, and that's the main driving point of what he's writing in chapters 1-4 to in 1 Corinthians. Only as a unified church, as one body, can they have love and affection and care for each other as to help each other avoid the same pitfalls that the Israelites, that their ancestors did. These examples today are ones that Paul emphasizes for the Corinthians and for us to pay attention to. Idolatry is something that was commonplace in the culture during the time of Exodus from Egypt, as well as even in the Corinthian context of the different pagan temples. In our context, we may not see actual images of an idol, but we can see what takes up space in our time, in our thought life, in our hearts. We can see what is concerning us the most, where we spend our time. What is the first thing that enters our minds when we wake up? What are we concerned with that keeps us awake at night? And what are we consumed with all the time in between that? We should conclude. Paul was jogging the memories of the Corinthian church to remember who they and the church are in Christ, who they were before and their ancestors before that presumed their salvation, but then they were punished by the Lord. And then he brings them back before the cross to know who Jesus is and the promise of the Lord to sustain them. You remember in the movie Coco, they emphasized that what you did on this earth mattered in a way that you wanted the people that were left here on earth to continue to talk about you and remember you so that your legacy will continue on and that you live on in the afterlife. But that's where the analogy of Coco falls flat. The fact is, yes, we are eternal beings, even though we only can see the temporary and the physical bodies here. And our eternal lives are not dictated by how well remembered we are by people here on earth. We only need one person to remember us, the one that the Father God forsook at the cross. As the criminal who was crucified next to Jesus requested, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As our family prepares to leave, we trust in the Lord. And he may will for us to meet again in this world. And we would meet and talk about memories together and experiences that we shared. 
But in our remembering, ultimately, we want to be remembering the faithfulness of God. For if the Lord wills that we do not meet again on this earth, on this side of eternity, we know as believers we will meet on the new earth and the new heavens. And at that point, we'll have all of eternity to catch up. And at that point, we will remember that the Lord is faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you remembered us. Lord, that you showed us your love when we were still sinners, rebelling against you, complaining against you. Lord, you gave us your life so that we may have eternal life. We praise you as our faithful Lord. Lord, remind us each day to remember your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.